And welcome to episode seven of the Unpacking Weight Science podcast called Weight Neutral Health Enhancing Habits. I'm your host, Fiona Willer, weight neutral professional development dietitian, academic, and size acceptance advocate. Our learning goals today are to appreciate the different definitions and indications of health. And I'm going to talk about risk exposures, surrogate markers, and disease indicators and how they differ. Identify intentional behaviours which are associated with enhanced health indicators and identify the types of scientific studies which can shed light on weight neutral health enhancing lifestyle factors. And I'm going to talk through three particular studies which highlight these factors. So first of all, just a reminder on what weight neutral means. (laughs) So the intention Uh, With a weight neutral intervention, the intention is not to change weight and the effect is also not weight change. So it doesn't erase uh, weight altogether and how important weight and the experience of weight has had in people's lives. But the uh, intervention itself isn't meant to change weight and doesn't have the effect of changing weight. So that's what I mean by um, the term weight neutral. And today I'm not talking specifically about the impact of multifaceted Hayes health at every size type interventions. I'll do that another time. I'm talking about separate health habits. So things or behaviors that people can do or access if they have the resources that are pretty safe things to do both separately and combined and are based on solid observational and experimental evidence over long periods of time. So if you're a Hayes advocate, this stuff is useful for when you're talking with Hayes detractors as it keeps a discussion on actual tangible lifestyle behaviours and outcomes rather than the more sort of nebulous ideas around body positivity. Arguably, the most important definition of health is how you feel in your body. This means that health is a resource that can change over time. It's not that there are only two settings either. Like it's not I feel great in my body versus I feel terrible in my body. Health could be defined by feeling okay or an improvement from terrible to okay. And using this sort of definition is useful as it embraces our mental health as well as our experience of our physical body life. Because of its focus on autonomy, health at every size really honours that definition of health as how you feel in your body. So as I go through this stuff today, please bear in mind that in the end, what matters for your own life uh, and the life of your clients, if you're a clinician, is your own lived experience of health. It's not what I talk about is not a how-to list or a recommendation. It's more like a 24-hour smorgasbord of options and your taste may change over time. And of course, that's cool too. That's life. But from a research perspective, health is usually defined as an absence of disease and delay of diagnosis further than expected is seen as a good thing and a long life is seen as a good thing. So they're all used as proxies for health. They sort of make the struggle of individuals uh, a little invisible as well, but that is in the research how health is defined. Lots of detail is missing in population stats. Many people die earlier than expected and many people by, die later than expected. As I've talked about before, the average is not what most people experience. It's just the middle of a widespread of eventualities. It's also really important to think about how these things are measured. If a study is looking at something, but the way they're measuring or trying to separate out the thing isn't valid, 
for example, using BMI as a proxy for behaviour or failing to adjust mortality for gender or socioeconomic status, then their findings can't be relied upon. I mean, they might be right, but it's difficult to tell for sure. And some diseases are discussed in terms of exposures. So these three concepts are important now, and we all put them into the sort of bucket of risk factors. But we've got exposures and we've got surrogate markers and then we've got the hard endpoints. So first I'll talk about exposures. So in terms of exposures, they're typically something that's enacted upon someone that we have little power over. So think of infectious diseases and environmental exposures like air pollution, occupational hazardous materials, sunlight, uh, and weight stigma as well. Um, usually we think about exposures in terms of infectious disease, you know, the ones you catch from someone or somewhere, and if you survive them, they go. Um, and then the other type of illness that we think about in terms of exposure is cancer. So exposures related to cancer, for example, include uh, exposure to sun, years of exposure to sun or sunburns um, in the case of skin cancer, or to asbestos in the case of mesothelioma. So cancer is a relative rarity in the population though. In Australia, the prevalence of cancer, so that is how many people currently have cancer, is less than 3%, which is also incidentally around the Australian prevalence of people with a BMI of over 40. With cancer and infectious disease, we avoid relevant exposures as best we can. Although, of course, most types of cancer come about from quirks of cell mutation and can't be anticipated. We know that we're reducing our cancer exposure risk by not smoking, by wearing sunscreen, by taking precautions when handling hazardous materials, but we can't completely avoid them. And we can't completely avoid something like weight stigma either at the moment because it's systemic in medicine and society. As I spoke about in the last podcast, though, self-compassion can help it to be a bit less toxic for people who are stigmatised. Sunscreen for the soul. The sorts of illnesses that are experienced by the largest proportion of the population by far are chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes. And they tend to be developed over a long period of time and also tend to worsen over time and their final complications may or may not be the thing that get you in the end. It's largely chronic disease and their final life-ending events that can be influenced a bit by what we do during our lives. So it's pretty easy to notice the cataclysmic disease endpoints like heart attacks, or organ failure, but most of the time people with chronic disease can't feel it. So how do we know that they have chronic disease? And the way that we can tell is through these surrogate markers. Surrogate markers are sometimes also called biomarkers. So they're measures of the biological system which are markers of disease risk, of disease progression, but they're not hard points, hard endpoints themselves. So the biomarker or the surrogate marker for a heart attack in the future may be high cholesterol, but the actual thing we're trying to avoid is the heart attack. So you know when you've had a heart attack, mostly, depending on how severe it is. But you don't tend, we can't feel our cholesterol levels. We can't, or most people can't feel their blood sugar levels. Um, we can't feel uh, uh, most of these surrogate markers. And so that includes things like, as I said, blood sugar and cholesterol levels, but also blood pressure, uh, 
fitness tests like VO2 max or pacing, mobility tests and exertion recovery tests and also physical indicators like signs of muscle weighting or grip strength tests, blood, vitamin and mineral levels, bone density, like all of those things you actually have to go and get tested for and you don't necessarily know what your response is going to be until you have the test because for example with grip strength it has to be pretty severe before it impacts on your quality of life um, because we tend to do the things that we're capable of doing rather than focusing on our deficits unless they're very severe. Surrogate markers often have medical names and are considered conditions unto themselves for example hypertension, dyslipidemia, osteoporosis and even diabetes type 2 which just means that blood sugar levels are not controlled as tightly as what's been deemed the biological norm. The cutoff points themselves for diabetes are controversial and they're very widely over time and between countries so it's not a yes no sort of situation with diabetes. But those surrogate markers aren't the ultimate endpoint that we're trying to avoid. So the stroke, the heart attack, the catastrophic fracture, the vascular damage leading to a foot amputation or kidney failure. The surrogate markers themselves usually are things that we can't feel or that we need extra testing to figure out if they're going on. So basically we've noticed that these exposures, surrogate markers and the hard endpoints are related to each other by working backwards. So a bunch of people with high cholesterol will collectively experience more cardiovascular issues than a bunch of people with low cholesterol levels. And we've mostly established the biological plausibility of those connections now. But the problem comes in when, when we assume that we can hack or fiddle around with the surrogate markers in order to influence the rate of the hard endpoints. The easiest way to explain this is that we've noticed that there's a relationship between high cholesterol levels and with heart attacks. And we've noticed also that there is a biologically plausible connection between those two. We can stepwise see the relationship between high cholesterol and heart attacks. However, when we're only looking at the relationship between those two things or few markers, uh, we are biased to looking, we're only looking in that area. There may be something else that is influencing both of those things. And then in the case of cardiac stuff, genetics plays a massive role. So it's one genetic player, you know, earlier on that is influencing both the cholesterol level and the propensity for that eventual heart attack. And potentially those cholesterol levels are completely incidental to the heart attack. And particularly if we've got something else that can get in the way and influence both things, for example, physical activity, which I'm going to talk about a little later, we've got physical activity that can lower cholesterol levels and also lower the risk of a heart attack. It makes it look like the lower cholesterol is what is influencing them influencing that heart attack risk but it may well be and it probably is the physical activity that's having an independent effect. So when we use these surrogate markers we can get ourselves into the position where we're only looking for those things and we forget to look for the other stuff that actually might be having the independent effect and things like physical activity patterns and food are missed out in so much research uh, to do with chronic disease. We've got such a vast quantity of weight loss research compared with research on health behaviours and health outcomes. It's really sad. So to demonstrate again with heart disease and how even with medication, which is a known dose and a known effect on 
cholesterol in the case of statins. Statins are a type of drug which lower cholesterol levels and they've also been shown to slightly lower your risk of having that heart attack. They're a blockbuster drug for the pharmaceutical companies. They're taken by hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people world over. And they do work, but only on a group basis. So in the case specifically of statins, 104 people need to take them exactly as prescribed for five years for one person's heart attack to be avoided. So the remaining 103 people have heart attacks at the same rate as the rest of the population with higher blood cholesterol. You don't ever know if it was you who avoided or delayed your heart attack. When it's anything more complicated than taking a pill of known dosage, then the things are even messier, which is why I prefer to look at the relationship between health behaviours and mortality and life-threatening events. They're harder to get wrong. They're less likely to be a red herring. So knowing that blood cholesterol levels are influenced by genetics, by stress, by age, sex, medication, physical activity, dietary factors, starvation... That's how weight loss studies get good-looking cholesterol results from the effect of insufficient energy intake, as well as potentially from influence from the things that they're doing to elicit that weight loss. But it's not known which of these things is actually doing the work or any work on avoiding that heart attack. When we look at studies that actually control for health behaviours, the relationship between weight and death and disease is almost non-existent. So that's what I want to look at now. A few key studies which are really clear on this. And the first one is a study that I have used in my presentations for years now <laughs> because it's just beautiful. So this study, it's in your supplementary materials, the link is, and it's an open access paper as well. But this was done by Matheson and his team and published in 2012. And what he did was look at the NHANES data set, so that's US population data set. And he looked at that set of people over a period of time until they died, right? So this is a mortality study. And what he did was pull out the people who ate five or more fruit or veg serves a day, the people who did 12 or more uh, physical leisure time, physical activity, and just things like golfing, walking, gardening, the bar was not set very high for physical activity uh, in this study. He pulled out people who uh, didn't smoke and he pulled out people who drank the alcohol guidelines. So they either uh, had one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men to get into the healthy category here um, or to be in the unhealthy category they had zero drinks or more than the recommendations now I personally don't I, I think that's a little bit fudgy the alcohol one but in any case that is what that this team did and then what he did was look at the difference between the different BMI bands and so for people who didn't have any of those habits in terms of the things that they did and then their death the fractioning looks just like the way that we assume that relationship is between weight and death. So we had the people in smaller bodies with the lowest risk and the people in larger bodies with the highest risk of mortality. And so that's people who didn't eat a lot of fruit and veg, weren't very active, smoked and also didn't drink anything or drank in excess of those guidelines. The beauty of this study is that he then, his study design meant that he could 
work out adding in just one more of those habits and its effect on mortality. And so when you add in one, there is a decrease across the board, but particularly for people in larger bodies. So people with bodies whose BMI puts them into the obese category, their mortality risk halved with just the addition of one habit. So it could be that they stopped smoking or that they didn't smoke. Um, It could be that they ate more fruit and veg. Then you add in two, you get more benefit across the board. Add in three, you get more benefit. And then by the time you get to four habits, so that's eating enough fruit and veg, being relatively physically active, not smoking and drinking the alcohol guidelines, there's no difference in risk of death between people in smaller bodies and people in larger bodies. No difference at all. So it's a relative risk study, which means it's compared with people in bodies with BMIs of less than 25 with all of the habits. There's no difference then in people with uh, BMIs classified as overweight or BMI classifiers as obese. It's really clear to see that health habits make a massive difference. Now in there, of course, is going to be, you're going to have people who, for whatever reason, cannot shift categories. So they may have the circumstances where they're unable to be regularly physically active, uh, active, and there's a lot of reasons why that may be. But in any case, it looks like if you can add a healthy habit to your life, then that will be good in terms of your longevity. Now, one study is never enough, but this phenomenon, the phenomenon where health related habits have an additive effect on longevity has been reproduced. So science is nothing without reproducibility. You can have one study saying something amazing, but if it's not reproduced in other settings at other times, then we can't be sure that it's a real thing. We do know mortality is affected. There's other studies that I link to in the materials as well, which show this sort of effect having um, an influence on stroke rates on heart attack rates. So not only does it affect all cause mortality or death by any way, (laughs) it also looks like it has a strong impact on those hard endpoints that we want to avoid. We want to avoid that heart attack. We want to avoid that stroke if we can manage it, if that's important to you. So that's those health habits together. Now I'm just going to pull out two which are close to my heart and that is physical activity and food. So physical activity in terms of the risk reduction potential is huge. The first thing is smoking. Not smoking is much better for you than being physically fit. But let's talk about physical fitness. So in a study by Wing, and he published this almost 20 years ago now, like this phenomenon is not new in the literature, but it tends to have been overshadowed in terms of funding and in terms of public interest by weight loss studies. Anyway, he and his team looked at the relative risk of all-cause mortality only fractioned out in terms of fitness. And his definition of fitness was three or four, three to four hours a week of walking. So it's not gym bunny stuff here. This is really accessible amounts of physical activity for a great chunk of the population. So it's a relative risk study again. So they have to have a comparative category. And in this, they, their comparative category were people with BMIs of less than 25 who were fit as he had de- defined. 
people then in that same weight category, but who did not walk for three to four hours a week, their relative risk of all-cause mortality was 2.2, so more than double the fit group in that weight band. When he looked at those deemed as overweight, they had a 1.1 increased risk compared with the comparator group, so only a 0.1 difference in risk. But those in the overweight category and who didn't meet that walking requirement had two and a half times the increased risk of all-cause mortality. And finally, those who lived in bodies with a BMI of over 30, again, they had the same risk as those in the overweight category, uh, 1.1, if they were fit. But if they did not meet those walking requirements, their risk of all-cause mortality was tripled, 3.1 compared with uh, 1. So we can see from this and the previous study that it is for people in larger bodies, these health behaviours make can make a really considerable difference to relative risk of uh, all-cause mortality. And then food. <laughs> so as a dietitian, this is very close to my own heart. Um, and I make no bones about it being less important than physical activity. Physical activity looks like the clear winner here. But in terms of food, like first of all, we know that dietary quality does not predict body size. So this study I'm going to talk about by Russell and their team that was published in 2013. They used an Australian adult data set, longitudinal study. So they followed them over periods of years. They also followed them to death because they were older, middle-aged adults at the beginning of the study and then they aged out and passed away during the period of the study. So they know about their deaths. They looked at dietary quality and they looked at BMI within dietary quality bands. They found, as others have, that there's very little relationship between dietary quality patterns and BMI. So the same proportion of people in smaller, medium and larger bodies have poor, medium and great dietary quality. There's really very little relationship between um, BMI and dietary quality. I mean, this is a big myth that's out there, um, but that is the thing. We cannot predict body weight by dietary quality and uh, dietary quality also doesn't predict body weight. There's no, there's no uh, relationship. However, the important part for us is that they found that those who had the highest quality diets so they took all of their data set and all of the dietary quality scores and then they divided that by five so they had what's called quintiles the one with the highest quality diet quintile those people enjoyed a 21 percent reduced risk of all-cause mortality when compared with the poorest quintile of dietary quality so that is regardless of weight regardless of bmi so that is uh, quite a interesting finding. It's one of the highest I've seen in terms of food quality and mortality. But it looks it is replicated this phenomenon that dietary quality has an impact on all-cause mortality, uh, particularly with wins in the cardiovascular disease category. So it's a, it is a real thing as well. So they're the two main phenomenon I want to talk about that additive health habits fruit and veg is what's doing the lion's share of the work in terms of dietary quality then we've got physical activity 
uh, and strength probably as well, which also is doing the main thrust of the work, not smoking, a biggie. When studies have either no alcohol or excessive alcohol, you can imagine that there's going to be some difference between people who eat, drink just over the recommended um, amounts versus people who drink very much over the recommended amount. There's got to be some difference there. We can't tell in the um, in this research that I've presented today. There's no way of telling. You know, you, you it's not really a fair comparison in my mind. But in any case, the other things that some studies have shown do make an impact on longevity social support and being a member of a community group. So feeling like you belong to a group of people and that you can rely on them and they can rely on you has an impact on all-cause mortality. And it can, it's shown, you know, in the realm of 30 to 40%. That's really huge. Um, and sleep is also impactful. So not enough and too much are both associated with poorer uh, longevity outcomes. So the sweet point by the looks of it is between five hours and not more than eight or nine hours. And interestingly, getting more sleep than that, so more than eight or nine hours of sleep, is associated with poorer um, health outcomes than if you get less than five hours sleep. Well, I personally still want, I would like my fair share of sleep uh, in general. I have small children. I would love to get to the point in my life where I can have enough sleep now. But um, interestingly, it looks like the having less than five hours is not going to impact me um, so much. So to sum up, we've talked about risk and health and the difference between exposures and surrogate markers and actual hard endpoints. And we've talked about some behaviours which look like are associated with better health outcomes or delay of disease. And we've talked about health habits studies. So I encourage you to have a look at those papers that I've listed in the supplementary materials and talked about today and follow the citation trails you'll be able to find what's currently being published in the area uh, and thankfully it is a really exploding area of research interest the impact particularly of dietary quality on outcomes is one that is gaining traction which I think is pretty cool <laughs> and it's really important while we're thinking about all of those things to remember that at an individual level, we can't ever avoid ill health for sure. All we really know for certain is what happens at a group level. If we take a bunch of people, we can predict the proportion that are going to have heart attacks, the proportion at particular ages, the proportion of people who are going to develop diabetes as, as they age but we can't ever pinpoint a particular person and say that they will get that. And that is a really important lesson for everyone. If we could really help people understand the uncertainty of health, I think that would take the pressure off people feeling so um, guilty when they don't perform these health behaviours. Because the thing is that none of us make it out alive and health is not important to everyone and we can never avoid ill health altogether anyway so taking everything 
flexibly and recognizing that we can't avoid illness, we can't avoid pain, and we need to accept and embrace it when it comes into our lives and recognize that that's a really normal part of life. If we could do that, we would have a much less stressed population and much less stretched, uh, stressed health professionals as well. So that's it for this episode. The supporting materials, which include the show notes, research links and self-test quiz are available up front for current subscribers to my Patreon Unpacking Weight Science page. And it's only five bucks a month, which is a total bargain for professional development. Or you can purchase the supplementary materials in a bundle if you're catching up with this later. And you can have a look at my unpackingweightscience.com website for details on that. Next time... The topic is theoretical versus actual weight change, industrialized wishful thinking, in which I'm going to compare and contrast what our mathematical formulas about energy requirements and weight loss say should be possible, i.e. the theoretical, versus what actually happens in real life, which is something quite different. I'm also going to talk about the history of this energy requirement belief system and who continues to use it and why. So until next time, goodbye. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.